This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Hey, dear friends, welcome to the program. Receiving a lot of emails about the podcast. Where is the podcast, you're asking, from last week's show? And uh, we had we had some sort of a logger malfunction. Isn't that right, Tim? We, the, the first logger, the secondary logger, and then there was an alarm that's supposed to warn Tim that the loggers are not operating. That malfunctioned. Come on, who's kidding who, right? Someone is trying to stifle this program. It's a conspiracy, Tim says in my ear. <laughs> You're well-trained. Thank you for that. Uh, so, unfortunately, that program is out in the ether, and it ain't coming back. Uh, and uh, so, if you didn't catch it live, I'm sorry. You missed a good one. We had uh, uh, Stephen Bassett from the Disclosure um, well, one of the, the key uh, UFO lobbyists in Washington who's launching the Citizens Hearing in, in D.C. at the Press Club with uh, former congressmen and uh, about 40 top-notch UFO witnesses, including military intelligence people. Uh, so we talked about that. We talked with... Uh, what else did we talk about? It's gone. It's gone from my memory banks, and it's gone from the logger tapes. So uh, that doesn't happen very often, and, and we're going to do everything we can to make sure it doesn't happen again. Uh, in the meantime, let me welcome a new uh, affiliate, KLXXAM 1270 Bismarck, North Dakota. Now, I believe KLXXAM 1270, Super Talk 1270, is actually in um, Minot, or excuse me for my pronunciation, it's Minot or Minot. Now, if memory serves, uh, there is an, a, um, this was the site of a, of a, a UFO sighting, a fairly significant one some time ago, where UFOs supposedly closed down or shut down some, some nuclear missile silos. Uh, that, I know it happened at Maelstrom, at Maelstrom, but I believe there was something going on in Minot as well. Anyway, uh, a big howdy-do and welcome. Very proud to have you aboard. KLXX AM 1270, Bismarck, North Dakota. Just a quick heads up what's coming up on the show in the coming weeks. On the 17th, that's, uh, uh, or let me just say it this way, next week, because some of our affiliates carry the show on different days. Next week on the program, Greg Pallast, 
to my mind, one of the last true investigative reporters on the planet. Greg Palast will be here to talk about the assassination of Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez. Yes, assassination in quotes. On the 24th, Russell Targ, Russell Targ, physicist, the man who was really instrumental in starting the, the study of remote viewing at Stanford University, uh, and it was funded, I believe, by, uh, well, sort of essentially by the military or the U.S. government, remote viewing. Uh, Russell Targ, that's on the t- uh, coming up in two weeks. And then the following week, as we approach the, my word, it's going to be the 45th anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King, Dr. Martin Luther King. Some might call it the state execution of Dr. King. Uh, William Francis Pepper will be here. He was James Earl Ray's last lawyer. He was also the lawyer who presided over the civil uh, trial in Memphis in the late 90s, during which James Earl Ray was exonerated by the jury for the assassination. Also joining us on the program that night, really co-hosting in the first hour, will be former U.S. Representative Cynthia McKinney. So William Francis Pepper, Cynthia McKinney, and we'll discuss the state execution of Dr. Martin Luther King April 4th, 1968. And coming up in early April, been looking forward to this one for quite some time, one of the, the great trends forecasters anywhere, Gerald Salente, will be with us. Much more. Uh, tonight, I've got a good one for you as well. And I'm, uh, I'm really excited to, to, uh, to bring this gentleman on board this evening because many of you out there on the program, I get emails from you. You truly believe that you are targeted individuals, that you are, you have been targeted by, we're not sure whom and for what reason exactly, but you are targeted for electronic harassment. And if you're out there listening, I hope you'll stay with us for the hour. I hope you'll call into the program. We'll make the phone lines available. In the meantime, we're going to hear the story, a harrowing story from a classically trained chef, a victim of electronic harassment and organized stalking. He is otherwise known as a targeted individual. Michael Bell is the author of Invisible Crime, Illegal Microchip Implants, Microwave Technology, and Their Use Against Humanity. And as I say, he's here to discuss his unbelievable story of how he was tracked and tortured by a covert organization via implants and microwave harassment. Michael, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Richard, very nice to be here. Thank you very much for having me on this evening. You come from a very interesting background. You are, as I understand, a graduate of the Culinary Institute of America. So you are a classically trained chef. Yes. Tell me a little bit about, about, about uh, that. Where, where well, do I've you... Been, I was very, very lucky, um, and uh, I, I've been able to work at some of the really top restaurants and hotels around the world, um, mostly the United States. Um, it's been, and it was, uh, you know, a wonderful experience and one that um, you never get tired of using. Um, I, and uh, I don't know, I've, I've really, cooking was really an, really my dream. And uh, to, to be able to go to the Culinary Institute was uh, a great, great honor. And uh, um, got me some really good jobs over the years. For those, the uninitiated, let's call them, 
What would your definition of electronic harassment and organized stalking be? Describe what it means to be a targeted individual, Michael. Um, well, for me, uh, the organized stalking, um, it's, it's very subtle. Uh, it, at first, the person who is targeted won't even realize that it's happening to them. Uh, it happens on such an imperceptible level that the, you would just think that a, a car that's just going by you, uh, would, you know, honking its horn or blinking its lights, you wouldn't think anything of it. But when it starts repeating over and over and um, you actually have contact with people um, that are subtly harassing you, uh, you, you know, in and of itself, it's like uh, getting bullied a little bit all the time. Um, for instance, someone might be, and, and sometimes there are things that happen. Not everything can be attributed to, you know, being a targeted individual. Uh, sometimes people will be, be behind you in line or something like that and be whistling or tapping their foot or jingling their keys. But those are also little methods and techniques that are used to anger uh, and try to get a response uh, out of the uh, victim uh, of this. And, and the other thing about it is uh, you asked about electronic harassment. That is a different form of um, it goes along with the stalking, but it's, it's uh, much more difficult to prove. Uh, you, uh, for instance, I get something called directed energy burns. Um, I'll go to sleep. I'll wake up with a huge burn on my arm or my leg. Uh, and that would be directly uh, connected to electronic harass harassment. Also, uh, uh, having... Uh, people on your phone with you, clicking on and off. And it's not, it's not done in a manner that's covert. They want you to know that you're being targeted, you're being harassed, you're being bothered. They're not trying to – they'll park right outside your house and just sit there doing nothing. And then when you come outside, they'll drive away. Um, and then another one will come. It's always a, it's a new group. They're extremely – well organized using the cellular system and the, as, theoretically from what I understand I can't actually say this to be true but theoretically it's done fully through the cellular system and the satellite system when you say cellular excuse me Michael when you say cellular you're not talking about mobile phones you're talking about your own cellular system your own your no, DNA no, no, I'm talking about the actual cell phones ah okay yeah, the, the, in connection uh, with, with the satellite system. Um, this this is how they ways. triangulate you. This is how they triangulate you and locate you. Is that what you're saying? Cor correct. They, they, do it to, they can do it several different ways. Uh, in my understanding, I, I mentioned a couple of different ways in the book, but principally um, every person has a, a, a personal almost like a, a fingerprint brainwave pattern uh, that, that, is, that they, only they give off. And somehow the perpetrators are able to capture this with the technology that they have that's been out for almost 50 years now or a little over and kept secret. Um, they've been able to capture the brainwave and then feed that into a computer, and they're able to... Um, actually in real time 
capture a person's thoughts, what they're hearing, um, depending on, on their setup. Um, there's, a, there's a couple of other techniques that they use, too, in combination. The, the microchip technology, uh, if someone has, for instance, and this, and this is all done uh, without a person's knowledge or consent, um, completely unwitting, uh, someone will go to sleep one night, and if it's done correctly, they may be, they may, like on a Friday night, they might go to sleep and they wake up and it's suddenly Sunday morning or it's Monday morning, and they don't recall the weekend. Uh, and th- it sounds like you're suggesting, happens. Michael, that there's an element. Excuse me. It sounds like you're you're um, you're you're discussing here now an element of mind control. If you if you're talking about missing time, yes. Well, the missing time happens because the person is usually drugged, and then uh, what happens is while they're drugged, they're mind-controlled, they're conditioned through through a a variety of different processes. For me, it was most terrifying. Um, I can only compare it to uh, the movie A Clockwork Orange, where um, the individual is put in a chair and forced to look at a screen with absolutely horrific images and terrible screams and crying going on in the background. And then, and then that in combination with the, uh, the drug that they've given you, which I discovered to be most, most of the time, it seems to be scopolamine is the drug of choice for these criminals. Michael, let me just jump in here. We'll take a timeout. Michael Bell is with us, a targeted individual classically trained chef, and now a victim of electronic harassment, organized stalking, and mind control. We'll find out when this all started, who may be behind it, what other other technology they're utilizing. We'll open up the phone lines. I know there are other targeted individuals who are dedicated listeners to this program, and we'll make those phone lines available to you as well. Questions and comments. Michael Bell, the author of Invisible Crime, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. My name is Richard Serrett. Michael Fitzhugh Bell is a graduate of the Culinary Institute of America. He's worked in some of the finest restaurants and hotels in the world, and he is now telling his story, his harrowing story uh, of um, electronic harassment, organized stalking, a victim of such, uh, otherwise known as a targeted individual. Michael, when did this start for you? When did you first notice that you were being electronically harassed and, and stalked? The Well, the stalking started first, um, and that just... Um, at first, it just seemed odd to me. It just seemed like, why, are, you know, I, I'd be the only guy on the street, nobody would be around, and then these cars would go by me uh, with these sustained honks, like two or three beeps, or just, you know, and, and I didn't really think about it that much at the time, but it kept happening over and over. And then as I read and did more research, I found out that this is one of the techniques that they use. Also, um, Oncoming traffic against you will either turn on or turn off their lights during the day, not at not at night, but they'll turn on their bright lights during the day. As, as if just, just to say we're passing. watching you, just to say we're watching you. Yeah, they're yeah. They're, they're 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 letting you know that they're that they're there. And when did this start? What what can you affix a year to this? Yeah, that hap- that that started happening in in around 2005, 2006, definitely, um, but. When I was actually, when I first started experiencing the electronic harassment, which comes in two forms, 
for most victims. Um, one is called V2K, which is the voice-to-skull technology, where a voice is actually beamed into the uh, target's head 24 hours, seven days a week, a nonstop, uh, huge sleep deprivation, or they have something else, what I have. I don't have that particular form of harassment. I have something called silent subliminal sound presentation, which is, uh, it causes, it, it almost sounds like a, a very strong tinnitus, like a ringing in the ears. Interesting. And, and you've ruled uh, out tinnitus. You've had that checked out, presumably. This is not tinnitus. Uh, actually, no, I never, I, I had done enough research when it, I just said to myself, thank goodness these things haven't happened to me, but little did I know that they were going to, they would come eventually. And um, the, the voice to skull, uh, unless people think that this is, you know, you know, uh, fantasy, there is something uh, that's, you know, been, been, I mean, reports published about this, equipment tested, microwave auditory effect. And, and in fact, yes. um, I, I believe there was a company that field tested something like this in the field, they, uh, or tested this in the field, and it was um, the name of the 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 equipment was called Medusa. Uh, I believe that's right. I, I I I remember reading that. And this is using this is using microwaves, uh, res- and it results in pressure traveling through the skull into the cochlea, and and this is real, folks. Yeah. Microwave auditory effect. It's it's and here. It's the, and it only only the person who's being targeted can hear it. So. You know, and there are people, you know, people, that's the, that's the first thing, that, you know, when that happens to people, uh, it, it's, very, it's very frightening. Um, when you're, when you, when you, what I call, at, when you become activated, when they flip the switch and you either start hearing the voices or you hear the ringing, um, it's very, very frightening because it doesn't stop. And um, you're really afraid to tell anyone because most People that get this condition are diagnosed as schizophrenic or delusional or they have some kind of dementia. Um, people, that's a problem with doctors. They don't, they think inside of a box. They're taught to think inside that box. Anything outside of that box, they don't recognize. And they also never recognize that the patient may actually be telling the truth about what's, ha- what's happening to them. And then, uh, unfortunately, what happens to most of these people is that they are wrongly uh, institutionalized. Happened to me three times in six months. Uh, from for the first time is when I was uh, I was abducted like six or seven times. And the first time it happened, they took me for a week, and that's when they were doing all this these. Uh, this conditioning on me and, and keeping me drugged. And the only parts that I remember is when this scopolamine, this very powerful drug uh, that's odorless, uh, colorless, and tasteless, you don't even know. It's, it's so powerful, it hits you instantly. And you don't, but you're, you're, you're coherent. You're not like you're, um, like you'd be if you had alcohol or you're not intoxicated, but this thing has you. And um, it is really, really frightening. You said it sounds like something out of Mel Gibson's conspiracy theory, and you're the Mel Gibson character. Now, Michael, I've talked to a number of electronic harassment, or, or let me say, a number of targeted individuals over the years. I've produced a TV show or an episode on my TV show about electronic harassment, uh, and and I've never heard uh, of the. I mean, this is. 
taking it to a whole new level. None of the people that I've talked to over the years have been abducted, have been subjected to uh, essentially um, sort of mass trauma. Uh, do, do you now, do you, have you been diagnosed with something like dis- disassociative disorder? I mean, have... No, they, no? actually, they, they um, each time that they, they took me, um, well, what happened to me the first time, I was gone for a week and I realized something terrible had happened to me and I needed, I want, first, I, 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 you know, I wanted to go to the police, but then I realized that the police are going to say, where's your proof? So I went to the emergency room to get a blood test uh, because I had talked to a private investigator who was very knowledgeable and what I described my story to him and what happened. And he said that you need to go get a blood screen right now, uh, get a tox screen, because that stuff only stays in your system for about 24 to 48 hours. So I went to the emergency room, still under the influence of this stuff a little bit, but I was extremely terrified of what had happened, and I kept asking for a blood test, and they denied me the blood test, and they decided to keep me for um, evaluation, and they did that to me three different times, and all times, every time I was released, I did not have a diagnosis. Um, But there was a lot of other people that were seriously disturbed in these psych wards. And uh, they would, people would come up to me and go, what are you doing here? What you, I, you could see why some of the other people were there. They were having serious mental uh, problems uh, and disturbances, nothing like what I had experienced. Michael Fitzhugh Bell is with us, the author of Invisible Crime. Uh, Michael is a a targeted individual uh, talking about uh, being subjected to... uh, uh, Well, let's talk about this, illegal microchip implants. I mean, do you you believe that you were chipped, essentially? Oh, what happened was they they don't do it all at once. They did it to me in different stages. And I have, in my book, I actually have all of my own MRIs and ultrasounds all showing clearly showing I mean even I mean it it doesn't take a genius to, to see that that there's something wrong with um, the uh, objects that I have circled in in my own personal MRIs a child could would, would, would be able to look at them and go what's that that doesn't look like it belongs there and um, I have all my own um, pictures and all my uh, included all my my uh, my most uh, revealing MRI images but it's very difficult to get those images Richard it's very difficult first of all to get an image that's not been corrupted by uh, 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 an imaging center that can wipe out anything that they don't want anyone to see Um, but it's also very difficult to get you can't just go into a doctor's office and go, hey, I, I need to get an MRI done. And they only show up, these chips only show up in MRIs and ultrasound. They will not show up in x-rays. How, fi- uh, how did you finally get uh, an MRI? Uh... I, had to, I had to go to Europe three times. Because in Europe, all you, need, all, you, all you have to do is have the money. Right. All you have to do is pay for it over there and say, listen, I want this done and I want that done. And they go, that's 1,500 euro. And then you go, there's your 1,500 euro. And then they give you your MRI, your ultrasound, whatever you want. And then the doctor also, I, I included the, uh, the doctor's findings. in When I got my first evidence in Madrid, Spain, 
of the first chip that I found in my navel, and uh, it's in my book. Uh, I circled it. I mean, you can clearly see what it is, um, and uh, there's no denying it. And uh, it's and also, I have the all these chips that I have. I have found somewhere in the neighborhood of 250 of these tiny little white scars that are corresponding and symmetrical on my body from head to toe and every place in between. What are these chips uh, for? I mean, uh, what has your research, uh, where has your research led you? I mean, do these chips emit some sort of a radio frequency? What are they used for? They're actually, um, they're actually, um, they don't even have batteries. And they're, uh, they're actually your own body's uh, energy and circulation of blood keeps these charged up um, so they don't it's not like they're going to run out uh, of battery power um, although there are times when they're stronger than others but um, I, I describe I described the I discovered a couple of different methods to um, disable or at least lessen the effects of these um, illegally uh, implanted microchip implants that I, that I, I mean, there's, I mean, pretty much every person that I check, even if they don't, even if they're not targeted, I will find certain scars on their hand in the exact same place that I have mine. And, and I go, you know, and, and they don't, they're not targeted, so they don't really care. They go, hmm, that's interesting. I never noticed those before. But I found that um, uh, these I describe in the book, I have a couple of different shielding and counter, counter uh, methods that I've included. Um, and the book itself is actually really a handbook written for targets and how to get their lives back, how to get back on track and to, to reduce uh, the amount of harassment that they're receiving, the pain. Um, we'll get into how that. To deal we, with family members. We'll definitely how to deal with doctors. We'll definitely what, get into that. What not to say? Right. We'll definitely get into that. Um, Michael Fitzhugh Bell joins us. He's a, 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 a graduate of the Culinary Institute of America, a classically trained chef, and his book is entitled "Invisible Crime: Illegal Microchip Implants, Microwave Technology, and Their Use Against Humanity." Let's take a few moments to talk about the perps. Now, I, I, you, you described this uh, these these people as uh, sort of this criminal underworld. But what led you to that conclusion? Because some people listening to your story may conclude that this is uh, some sort of a, a black ops, uh, I don't know, covert, uh, you know, intelligence organization. Why is it a criminal underworld in your mind? I, although, you know, there's no denying well, what they're doing is criminal. I'll, I'll tell you, it, there's, there's actually two types of perpetrators. There are the black ops that are working for the government who have unlimited funding and can pretty much do whatever they want and really are immune to getting in trouble of any kind. Uh, You can't prosecute these people. Um, They write all the laws and they protect themselves and then they hide behind a clause that says, um, uh, you know, this is is a a state of of national uh, security uh, matter. We can't we're going to have to dismiss this case. Um, but there's two types. There's, there's the black ops type with the government, which are actually doing testing on people. And then this information was either sold, this technology was either sold or stolen or both 
by the criminal underworld in my studies. And um, I mean, imagine if you could imagine what, what kind of power somebody would have if this technology got into the wrong hands. It would be, uh, I mean, if you, these people are generally, the, the, perp, the perpetrators themselves are sociopathic. They are psychopathic people. Oh, they, they would have they, to be. Yeah, they would have to be. They don't care. They, they, they seem to enjoy uh, the harassment that they uh, deal out to the, to the targeted people. And the people really never find out, usually, sometimes they do. Some, some people actually find out who who, 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 you know, who's targeting them and why. But that's one type. The other people... Let me just uh, let me get you to hold on to that thought, Michael. We'll take a time sure. out. We'll come back. We'll find out who the, uh, the other uh, group of perps uh, are. Michael Fitzhugh-Bell is with us, classically trained chef and a targeted individual. If you are a targeted individual, we'd love to hear from you. Phone lines available to you and other questions and comments as well. Microchip implants and electronic harassment right here on The Conspiracy Show. Richard Serrett, stay with us. Actually sitting here uh, looking at a patent for uh, voice-to-skull technology. This is real, folks. Names the inventor, names the, uh, the, um, the lawyer uh, representing the, uh, the firm that invented this. And uh, a brief summary of the invention here in the patent. I've discovered that a pulsed signal in a radio frequency carrier of about 1,000 megahertz is effective in creating intelligible signals inside the head of a person if the, elect- if the electromagnetic energy is projected through the air to the head of the person. Intelligible signals are applied to the carrier by microphone or other audio source, and I cause the bursts to be frequently modulated. It goes on to describe... Uh, uh, the uh, the device, the drawings, the detailed description of the invention, etc., etc. A microwave uh, voice-to-skull technology. It is here. It is real. It is being used against people like my guest, Michael Fitzhugh-Bell, graduate of the Culinary Institute of America, a targeted individual and the author of Invisible Crime, Illegal Microchip Implants, Microwave Technology, and Their Use Against Humanity. Uh, Michael, we were talking about the perps uh, but yeah, before we do um, that, let me just grab a few calls because sure. there are people out here, uh, as I say, who, have, who, who believe they are targeted as well, and maybe we'll, uh, we'll hear from some tonight. Let's first say hello to uh, Dave in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Dave, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Hello. Go ahead, Dave. Dave has his radio on. Okay, so Dave, turn your radio off and we'll come back to you. Let's say hello to Pete in New York. Pete, hello. Welcome. Hello, Pete. Hello. Hi, go ahead. You're on the air, please. Yeah, hi. Uh, hi, Richard. Hi, Michael. I'm, I'm curious about one thing. Um, I heard you say that, you know, they're doing all these things, and obviously you've done a lot of research into the subject. Uh, all the things that you speak about, incidentally, they're all real and they do exist. But I found that there's, like, two types of people that are a victim to this thing. And I was wondering, why do you think they're targeting you what is the particular reason well that some some people are targeted for simple reasons like hatred jealousy um revenge um you, you know you you crossed somebody somewhere um or you um made a bad business deal and someone and this is their your punishment that's one type of person um there, and then there's also the random people that are in the wrong place at the wrong time and maybe just chosen by
by the government um, as literally as a lab rat to be studied and dissected uh, mentally. All right, Pete in New York, thank you for that. Uh, Michael, the first person I, I ever met who was a, a targeted individual, I believe she worked with the Corps of Army Engineers uh, in the United States. Uh, she moved up here to Canada. Uh, and uh, this, she's been a lifelong targeted individual. Um, and I believe she would put herself in the category of maybe the guinea pig. They're testing whatever they have on her. Uh, basically ran her out of her career. Uh, but then I, so there's that group. And then I met this lovely woman, uh, in New York city. I met her in her apartment her tiny little apartment. Uh, she's an event planner and she was led to conclude that she was being targeted because she lived in rent, a rent controlled unit and they wanted her out. So, uh, I mean, it, that yeah, gives I you, I know her, she's a friend of mine. Ah, okay. So, so again, who, who, who's targeting you? Have you, have you been able to determine that? You know, I really haven't. Nobody has come forward uh, to claim responsibility for it. And so, like, for many people, it's just like, why? why? What have I done to deserve this? Uh, although there are people, like um, my friend in New York City, who wanted to, be, they wanted to drive her out of her apartment because she was paying less money than they were, and they wanted her apartment, and... They wanted to try to force her out, and um, but she's resisted, and she's uh, a very strong person, and uh, has really uh, dealt with this terrible hand of cards that she's been given very, very well. Have you talked to Robert Duncan, who's uh, one of the key researchers in this field? I just read it. I just read an article by uh, by him just recently, and uh, I believe he was the creator of what they call synthetic telepathy. I don't know about that. Tell me about that. Or at least he had, he had, he had some, uh, some contribution toward it. Okay. Yeah, he's a, I know he's a very learned man uh, in, the, in this field, and, and uh, whenever there's an issue that pops up in the news regarding a potential mind control victim, we have him on. Uh, and I know that also you've sought the counsel of uh, Roger Tolsis, who is uh, an expert yes. in sort of counter-electronic uh, counter surveillance. Yeah, Roger was a huge help to me. Um, uh, in a time when I was, especially in the beginning, uh, you know, you're not used to, uh, you know, you have your life one day, and you never really realize how good you had it until it's taken away from you, and you're handed this, this horrible situation, um, really what I describe in the book as a nightmare from which you never seem to wake. And um, Roger's been very helpful to me over the years, uh, answering questions, um, giving me insight. Um, he's been he's been invaluable, and he's really the only person that offers the service that he does. There's really no one else like him. All right, Michael. Let me take another time out. Come back, and we'll find out exactly uh, what uh, what can be done uh, for other targeted individuals. What seems to to help, if anything. Michael Fitzhugh Bell, targeted individual, the author of Invisible Crime. Stay with us here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Michael Fitzhugh Bell stays with us, a graduate of the Culinary Institute of America, a classically trained chef, and a targeted individual. Uh, here, uh, retelling his harrowing ordeal with um, electronic harassment, organized stalking, uh, microchip implants. M Michael, so many questions and so little time here, and I, I want to work in another call quickly. But, but uh, when you decided to come forward, 
I mean, let me ask you this. How, how, um, how are you getting on in life? I mean, are you able to continue to work as a chef? Are you even employable at this point? Well, I, I actually, um, I was, uh, I went out to Hollywood like so many uh, aspiring writers, uh, and uh, I was a screenwriter, and I also worked as a chef as well. Um, and um, I don't know, uh, I would say that, um, I'm sorry. What, well, are you able to work? Oh, uh, yes. I'm, well, I'm still able to do my writing. And uh, I could go back to working in the kitchen if I wanted to, um, but being being a targeted individual really makes it, it's very very difficult for people to maintain a, a regular job without. I, I would I would imagine. Uh, now let me ask you: Are there still missing gaps in time? Do you still find yourself suddenly you know waking up and you you can't account for the last three days? No, I think that they've I think they've pretty much done all that they had planned to do to me and oh before I forgot if I could just slip it this in I actually had uh, one chip removed from my jaw that was my next I, question okay a chip removed the, I'm sorry yeah no I'm just I'm following up on what you're saying you had a oh, chip yeah, removed I did from actually your... have one removed from my jaw uh, but the doctor would not let me keep it I did get a couple of good photographs of it and they're they're in my book and on my website but um, they wouldn't let me keep it though and um, I'm pretty sure that the doctor was spoken to by someone high up okay. uh, to not allow me to take this thing or, or to identify it for what it was. Uh, so I never really actually got to prove what it was. But I have pictures of it. And um, oh, the other thing I wanted to tell you is that another horrible thing is, since we have so little time, is the uh, they're able to invade and... Uh, Control your dreams at night when you're sleeping. Give me an example. How does, how does that work? Um, well, I used to have regular dreams like everyone else. Uh, n- now the dreams that I get are um, they're extremely vivid, and they're usually um, a lot of times they're either violent or sometimes sexual in nature. They're just uh, they're really weird dreams. I mean, you have once in a while you have a nightmare, but these things happen every night. Uh, once they start happening, you don't get your old dreams back. And usually, like, if you get up in the middle of the night um, and then, you know, to get some water or whatever, and you go back to sleep, usually your dream, that dream that you were dreaming, you sometimes you don't even remember. It just, just goes away. Right. They this stay thing, with this you. This thing is like a videotape. This it's is like about hacking. And then when you go back to sleep, it continues again. And it's usually the same scenario. You're, you're as the target, always the loser. You're always, um, you're a loser. You're being taunted. You're being made fun of. You're, you're um, being laughed at. Um, you, you've lost something you can't find. You had a, some keys in your hand, and you turned around, and you spend the rest of the dream looking for this, this thing. It's the same scenario over and over. This is about hacking the human mind, folks. Uh, Dave is in Hamilton. Uh, Dave, welcome uh, to The Conspiracy Show. Yeah, hopefully we make it this time. I lost you the uh, first time. You're but, on the uh, air. I've got some information that goes back to 70, uh, 76 of when I've uh, been targeted since that long. And um, I call it 
I call it STOP, Strategic Targeting of Persons, and it um, basically leads to what I call constructive homicide. Constructive homicide. You mean you're, you, you're the victim. They want to drive you over the edge. Is that the idea? Right. I mean, I've had, you're familiar with the terms constructive dismissal and constructive uh, eviction, right? Correct, correct. Yeah, that's uh, happened in my life, and I was uh, forced out of high school um, without cause. It was basically constructive uh, expulsion. I've had this happen with my driver's license, that they uh, ticket you without cause, and then when you go to fight it, there's uh, the ticket's... Uh, you never get notification of it in court. They just run it through, uh, forged documents and whatnot, and next thing you know, you're under suspension, and you get pulled over, and then you get a license suspension, and your insurance goes through the roof. Um, and it just kind of goes on and on. And one of the main things that they do is they, they try to smear your name within the community to make you the laughing stock, and they also use the tactic against other people. They basically say, you get this guy or we'll get you, and if you do get him, we'll give you X amount of dollars to make it worth your while. So, Okay, sorry to cut you uh, uh, short there, Dave. I just want to get uh, Michael's we're tight for time. I appreciate the call. He's, Michael, he's actually 100% correct. Yeah. That's what happens. Uh, uh, what happens is um, uh, the government or these organized uh, crime groups will subcontract out to people to uh, harass people and... Um, they're either paid in gas money or some kind of reimbursement. Some of them are paid in drugs, whatever, whatever payment. Uh, I mean, that's the type of person that you're looking at uh, that would do this for a living. Um, this is what somebody does. They don't have a regular job. They just go around harassing people. And that was the other thing I was going to say is that the other type of person that harasses people are actually people who are being mind-controlled to harass other people, and they aren't even aware that they're doing it. They're, they'll stand behind you in line, and they're given a notion to cough or clear their throat. Um, and sometimes it's an intentional person doing it, but you never know who it is. And sometimes it's actually a legitimate, you know, coughing or a sneeze, you know, but uh, the, the targeted individual picks up on it pretty quickly and is able to distinguish um, especially if, if somebody coughs and, and gives you a glare and stares at you with an right. angry look. Right. You know, it's no funny. Uh, or it's you're walking along the street and some guy, you know, gives you the finger and yells curse words at you for no reason. All right. Dave and Hamilton, I appreciate the call. Sorry we, uh, we uh, had to move along quickly. I want to work one more in here. John is in Ohio this evening. John, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Yeah, Richard, hello to you and your guest, uh, I just wanted to relate a quick story and then had a quick question. Um, I don't, I like your guesses. He doesn't know why he's being targeted. I don't think I am, but <clears throat> some things are really strange. I was taking care of my father years ago, and he, he was real sick. And um, I noticed a lot of getting back to the vehicles. The cars were these vehicles, strange vehicles I've never seen before were going by. And I just happened to look up this one time, and I saw this white blazer go by, and a gentleman picked up on the radio right as I looked out, and I saw him speaking to the radio, and he said, He's inside. He's watching the TV. And at the same time, I could hear the voice come over my... It came through my TV. And to this day, it's just freaked me out. I can't figure out why. And, and I'd like to, to ask you know, your guests to comment on that. And, and also the question was, um, would, would local officials like the police or somebody, would, would they be also involved? Because I'm not, I'm not like a drug dealer or anything. There's no reason for them to, you know, to target me. 
like your guest said, he doesn't know why, and I don't think I'm being targeted, but that's that's all I had. I just wanted to know if you could comment on that for me. Thank you very much. Appreciate the call from Ohio, John. Thank you. Go ahead, Michael. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I've actually heard of that before. Um, the voices being um, transmitted through the television, over the radio, um, coming on in the middle of a phone call to somebody, um, uh, messages coming up on your computer, you know, just like like a word, like this is a famous one that, that the perpetrators like to use, obey, will we'll just come up on your screen like for a second and then, then it's gone. Um, Michael, can I ask you something? Because it, it, it's so elaborate, this stalking and harassment, that one would suppose or can only imagine the number of people that would need to be involved and, and uh, managed and controlled and organized. And uh, I mean, how many people do you think would be involved in just stalking and, and harassing you? Dozens? A hundred? Oh, yeah. Well, see, the thing is, is that there's people put in place everywhere. So no matter where you move, the, the people that are harassing you are not going to follow you. The new group will pick up where, wherever you left off. And certain areas are much worse than others. Some places you, you won't get that much. Some places are really horrible. Um, we just have a few minutes, Michael. Can you, can you give us some, some takeaway here, some hope for those people that are suffering, that are targeted as you are? What right. can they do to make their lives bearable? Well, that's, that's, that's uh, pretty much uh, I, I reveal all the, all the things that I've learned. I, seven years of exhaustive research uh, that I put into this book, and... Um, I give away every secret that I've discovered, um, but I have to say that basically um, 50% of, because this thing can drag you down real fast. You can financially, uh, emotionally, um, spiritually, can really drain you. Uh, but so really 50% is being positive. That, that's really, I mean, people like, and that sounds easy, but it's very difficult to do under these circumstances. So if you can do that, then you're halfway there. If you can get to yourself to, a, you, you just can't let this thing spiral down uh, and get you down. You have to rise above it. And I also reveal a lot of techniques and methods that I've used to help myself get back to where I am today. Um, I'm, a, I'm, I've almost got my, my life back the way it was before. It's still not 100% the same. But, is there any sort of shielding? Um, you can, can you shield? Is there yes, a, a lead I, I've, paint? I've or? actually discovered shield, some shielding methods that I um, reveal in the book. One of them is uh, a VCR magnetic tape. You can make blankets out of, these, out of this stuff. I, I tell in great detail how to do this, and it will offer protection to people. And the neodymium magnets are another huge uh, thing to... Um, to prevent that uh, that will actually wear down the the uh, voice to skull technology um, uh, implants that people have usually their cochlear implants and uh, it wears them down it, it, to a point where it's tolerable. Um, How's your family been through this? I don't know what your fam- your your family situation is. Do you have a wife, children? Well, yeah, yes. Uh, actually, my parents are um, back on the East Coast. And they're listening to the show right now. I think um, they've been—they were very nice to me because I lived in California at the time, and I fled once uh, this thing got out of control. 
and uh, I was getting drugged all the time and being locked out of my building. One time I was, I was drugged and locked out of my building only wearing a pair of boxer shorts and a T-shirt. And, then, and, and talk about a nightmare. You know, I was actually locked out. And, I mean, it, it, it can't get much worse than that. No, no. And once that happened, uh, I, my parents were very, very nice to me. And I thanked them in the book uh, for letting me use their house as my bunker so to speak, um, to prevent any further harassment. And Let me ask you a difficult question, Michael. I, I mean, are, yeah. I, they're, they're supportive and they're loving, of course, but do they believe you? Um, they're still skeptical, but uh, I have such overwhelming evidence in my book uh, and all my MRIs and um, all the patents that I list in the book um, that they can't help but but consider the possibility, and the technology is there. So it's not like it's something I made up. Uh, I have a great imagination as a writer, but it's not that good. Right, right. Oh, my. Michael, listen, I really appreciate you uh, not only coming on this program, but uh, speaking out. I've talked to enough uh, uh, victims, enough targeted individuals over the years. I believe that this is happening to people, and we know that the technology is real, and it is available, and it could fall into the wrong hands. Well, anybody who's using it, those are the wrong hands, because it's being used uh, for truly evil purposes. And, uh, Michael, I don't know if you're a religious person. You talked about, you know, how it could drag you down spiritually, but I I, uh, pray that God goes with you and protects you. And um, thank you you for writing uh, this book. Uh, Where can people get a hold of Invisible Crime? I was going to ask you if I could mention my website. It's www.invisiblecrime.com. I've linked up to your site on uh, my site as well at richardserrett.com. If they go to the homepage and click on Michael F. Bell, that'll take you right to your site. Oh, thank you very much, Richard. Michael, stay well. Let's do this again. All right. I look forward to it. Thank you so much. All right. Michael Bell. Uh, Not sure if I can... uh, say that I'm a targeted individual, although I've sort of hinted at what's been going on over at our family. Maybe we're being spiritually attacked. I'm not sure, but um, we're getting through it. Thank you for your positive emails. Uh, Enough said on that score. Uh, Let me just direct you to the website, richardserrett.com. Everything you need to know about The Conspiracy Show, you'll find there. Hey, friends. Welcome aboard. Hope you'll stay with us for the duration. Tim Spreen working the the dials and the knobs and the switches and answering the phones. You're going to stay with me, Tim, aren't you? You're not going to leave me like all my other producers. (laughs) He gave me the thumbs up and the salute. All right, we'll see. You know, because uh, what have you been with me now? About six months? Yeah. Have you changed as a result of doing this program in any way? Sort of. A little bit, yeah. He thinks about stuff more. That's what happens. It's like a worm, you know. It gets into your ear. And uh, do you remember that uh, the Star Trek, uh, uh, The Wrath of Khan, one of my favorite scenes where Chekhov, they, they put some sort of, I don't know, it looked like a, a June bug in the larva stage into his ear. Do you remember that? And uh, that was uh, Ricardo Monteblan who did that to him, right, Khan? And, uh, uh, of course, Chekhov goes mad. <laughs> he, uh, so the one impression I do, it's, very, it's a very <laughs> obscure impression. It's Chekhov. If I could recreate that scene, he said, Captain, they put creatures in my ears. <laughs> that was, he drove him crazy. But that's what this program is akin to that June bug in the larva stage going into your ear, Tim. 
So just stay on an even keel. You know, don't drink too many of the Red Bull. Um, and if there are, you know, any questions, any concerns, you've got my number any time of day or night, please call. Uh, but I drove all the other producers off. They went to find themselves in places like Kathmandu and uh, Dan Ellison, who was back here a couple of weeks ago, sitting in when you were away. Uh, Dan um, uh, fled across to the to PEI, Prince Edward Island, and he's going back there now. Completely drove him out of the radio business. That's what happens to producers on the conspiracy show. Uh, you know, I uh, I wish I could get into a time time machine and travel back. Uh, to to uh, before the day when media scientist Nelson Thal took me to dinner and presented me with a copy of Carol Quigley's Tragedy and Hope uh, because I read that book and I've never been the same. Never had a truly restful sleep <laughs> again. Um, however, I wouldn't, uh, at the same time, I, I, I wouldn't trade it, right? I wouldn't trade it because, um, was it Plato who said, an unexamined life is not worth living? And we have to be willing to dive down into that rabbit hole and search for the truth. And that's what we try to do on the program. Hey, I want to welcome a new affiliate, KLXX AM 1270, Super Talk 1270 in Bismarck, North Dakota. Welcome aboard once again. A little bit later in the show, we're going to talk to Dr. Lynn Katai, who, was, um, who has become really the, the key spokesperson regarding a rather significant UFO sighting that happened throughout Arizona, parts of Nevada, uh, in the uh, state of Sonora in Mexico back in uh, March of 1997. We're now approaching the 16th anniversary of the Phoenix Lights, Dr. Lynn, uh, who gave up a, um, a medical career, essentially, as a, uh, a health educator, uh, gave that up in order to come forward several years after the, uh, the, the Phoenix Lights in '97. To speak about it, she's made a documentary about it, she's written a book about it, and uh, we'll talk to her towards uh, the bottom of the hour. First off, however, we're going to talk mysterious, scary, flying creatures. And we're uh, happy to have aboard, once again, our regular contributor, paranormal investigator. She's also a cryptozoologist. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is here to talk about these unbelievable sightings and encounters with strange winged creatures. And we're going to talk thunderbirds, flying manta rays, the mothman, gigantic owls, predator birds, and Marilyn's famous flying reptilian known as the Snally Gaster. Her new book is Monsters of West Virginia, Mysterious Creatures in the Mountain State. Hey, Rosemary, how are you? I'm doing great, Richard. Just got back from the International UFO Congress. It was was such a delight to see you there. What a great event. Yes, it was a great event. Uh, I mean, I guess that is among, uh, in terms of the UFO conferences, that is the big daddy, isn't it? It is. It is the best, the biggest, uh, always a great event for the latest of research information from the leading experts in the field, and a fabulous networking event, and who can beat going to Arizona in the wintertime? Oh, I think we both needed a break. You're getting uh, lots of snow in Connecticut, same here, up in uh, north of Toronto. And it was great meeting your, your fiancé, Joe, by the way, and congratulations once again. Thank you very much. We will be getting married sometime this spring. Uh, Joe loves these subjects as well. In fact, we actually met at a Mothman conference in 2004. How appropriate. 
How appropriate. And we'll talk about the Mothman because the Mothman figures largely in your new book, Monsters of West Virginia, Mysterious Creatures in the Mountain State. So let's let's start with the, with, with the Mothman. Uh, now, the, is the festival held in Point Pleasant, where the, which was sort of the center of the Mothman storm? Yes. The focus of Mothman occurred around the Point Pleasant, West Virginia area from 1966 to 1967, over about a 13-month period. It did extend up and down the Mid-Ohio River Valley on both sides, but most of the activity was reported in that vicinity. Mothman uh, is a winged humanoid creature, man-sized, about six feet tall, um, Descriptions have ranged from dark to gray, um, furry to feathery, with glowing red eyes and these enormous wings that enable this entity to lift straight up in the air and fly at very fast speeds. Now, during the Mothman wave, there were a lot of sightings of this creature, just absolutely terrified people. Even though it never really attacked anyone, it seemed to be very curious about people, but a very frightening countenance, as you can imagine. And in addition to that, there was a a wave of UFO activity, mystery lights in the sky, crafts, uh, beings who said they were aliens, men in black, poltergeist disturbances. It seemed like the entire area just erupted into paranormal chaos. Most people, of course, would know about the Mothman from the the Mothman Prophecies movies, which I think starred Richard Gere. Uh, And he's now. Did Gere's character was he supposed to be loosely based on uh, John Keel, the the man who actually wrote the Mothman Prophecies book? Yes, John Keel. Well, investigated the case and wrote a book about it. Keel was one of the leading paranormal researchers of his day. And the movie was, as you said, loosely based on the book. In fact, if you hadn't read the book, it, it, the plot was probably hard to follow. But Gear played uh, the Keel character, the journalist who goes to investigate weird happenings in West Virginia. Keel is kind of a controversial figure, but let's let's talk about the some of the um, what what people claim they saw. I remember reading accounts of people who were in a in a in a car, being chased by this thing as it was flying alongside them, and they went to the I believe the sheriff's department, and the sheriff actually believed that they were sincere. These people were frightened out of their wits. You know, when you when you live in a small town, uh, everybody knows everybody. And so the local law enforcement people, they're going to know uh, who the reliable folks in town are. And, uh, you know, you take, you take your neighbor seriously. So even when these four adults came into the sheriff's office with this incredible tale, they were out one no- mid-November night in 1966 at an area right outside of town called the TNT plant. This was an abandoned TNT manufacturing site. And it was used as a munitions dump. Uh, There's um, uh, still a lot of the old storage sites in the area. But it was a favorite spot for people to go out and, you know, have a little romance. And um, sometimes people like to go out and play tricks on, uh, on others who were out lingering in the area. So these two couples uh, went out one night uh, just for a lark, just to have some fun. And 
um, nothing much happened, but on the as they started to go back to town, they suddenly saw this creature that didn't fit anything that they knew in real life, this winged humanoid who seemed to have its wings snagged on uh, on a fence, and it was like trying to pull it off. It had these glowing red eyes. Well, it just scared the devil out of them. So they floored the car to race back to town, and suddenly they saw that this creature was flying alongside of the car. In fact, it banged itself on the roof of the car. It kept pace. No matter how fast they went, it kept right up with them and peered in the window. They were screaming. They were terrified. Well, the creature peeled off, and they went to the sheriff and reported this sighting, and it seemed you know, too strange to him, but these were solid citizens, so they must be telling the truth. They weren't drunk. They'd never been in trouble. And he he went back with them to the area to investigate. Of course, the creature by that time was gone from that area. But then right after that, other people started having sightings. It peered in the windows of a home, terrifying the occupants. Um, a woman had a very close encounter with it right outside the house. She was trying to escape with her baby, and uh, the creature came right up to her. Um, people saw it at a distance. They saw it flying in the sky. Of course, the skeptics jumped right in and said, oh, you know, this is mass hallucination. People are making it up. You're mistaking it for big birds. All kinds of ridiculous explanations. But Mothman is still seen today, not in an intense wave like we had back then. But people do report sightings in the area and even around the world. And he seems to show up, <clears throat> excuse me, he seems to show up around uh, disasters and calamities. There was a collapse of a bridge, I believe, which connected, is it parts of Virginia to Ohio? I'm not sure exactly where it was, but uh, this bridge collapsed and there were a number of people who were killed. Yes, that's right. About 13 months after the wave started, there was um, a sighting of, of Mothman near this bridge called the Silver Bridge, and it did span West Virginia to Ohio. There uh, were a lot of ca cars stalled on the bridge. Apparently there was uh, something on one end that was blocking traffic, and uh, all these cars were sitting on the bridge. People had been out Christmas shopping. Suddenly the bridge gave way, and over 40 people lost their lives. And it's said today that there isn't a single family in Point Pleasant who was not touched by this tragedy, either by losing someone in their extended family or having good friends who lost someone. So it did leave a mark, but that gave Mothman this association of a death omen. And uh, I don't know how much of that is really associated with the creature or ha has become uh, something that we have created. Uh, you know, human beings believe in something strongly enough, and we then have experiences that validate that. But Mothman now has often been associated with uh, big disasters. Yes, there was a, another bridge collapse, I believe, uh, somewhere in Minnesota. Uh, they, they killed a number of people, and there were reportings of uh, the Mothman just days before. I've even heard people say Mothman was seen around uh, the World Trade Center prior to 9-11. Now, again, I don't know how much of this is uh, 
you know, just this this legend in people's mind, and, and they see what they want to see, but it, it is remarkable. Listen, uh, Rosemary, we'll take a time out, we'll come back, and we'll talk about other famous winged creatures that are said to inhabit West Virginia and other places in the United States. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, Monsters of West Virginia, Mysterious Creatures in the Mountain State, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. We are back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley, one of the nation's leading experts on the paranormal. More than 50 published books, including her new one, Monsters of West Virginia. Uh, she's also the author of Haunted Salem, the Encyclopedia of Ghosts and Spirits, the Encyclopedia of Witches, Witchcraft, and Wicca. I've got a number of those books right behind me on the bookshelf. Uh, Rosemary, now why, why West Virginia, the mountain state? Is there something in particular about uh, that place? Or I mean, many of the creatures that you talk about in this book are found elsewhere in the United States, correct? Absolutely. Everywhere on the planet has weird things running around, mysterious creatures, paranormal activity. But there are places where intense amounts of activity seem to happen all the time, and West Virginia is one of these areas. In fact, um, in in the eastern United States, an entire uh, area from um, Pennsylvania on down into the Carolinas, even extending up into New York State. It's that ridge of mountains that goes from the Adirondacks into the Catskills, into the Poconos, the Alleghenies, and the Appalachians down into the Brown Mountains. Um, These are areas associated with a higher than uh, average uh, incidence of all kinds of paranormal experiences. I think that there are explanations for this. For example, West Virginia is a mountainous state. In fact, it's called the Mountain State. And it's got a lot of dense forests in it, very lonely, remote areas where um, most mysterious creature sightings take place out out in the uh, rural, lonely areas. This is very characteristic of places around the world. There's also uh, a lot of neg- uh, negative and positive magnetic anomalies in West Virginia. And uh, paranormal investigators such as myself have found that magnetic anomalies seem to be associated with these intense hot zones or portals of activity. These anomalies are created by the content of the soil. There's a lot of mining that goes on in West Virginia, and it's got a lot of um, a quartzite in the soil, uh, a lot of minerals and ore, a lot of coal, and um, uh, heavily mined uh, places also are associated with a lot of activity. You know, there's ancient folklore that says that a lot of spirits use underground passages to access our world. And we find this in areas where there are natural caves, a lot of subterranean areas, and mining activity. Got to ask you about uh, one of the creatures you mentioned in the book, Monsters of West Virginia. I've not heard of this before. Fill me in on the Snallygaster. I love that name, the Snallygaster. Snallygaster actually started out as a hoax, but strangely took uh, took hold and now seems to be a, a real supernatural creature. And this is where we, we often have to wonder how much we are... Uh, co-creating our experiences. I do think that there are all sorts of weird creatures that live in other dimensional realms, and they appear to us 
however we're able to perceive them. This has been documented for centuries. But the Snallygaster was an admitted journalistic hoax. Now, in the late 1800s to the early 1900s, uh, hoax journalism was uh, quite common in America, and newspapers competed heavily for each other, for readership, and they would often run fantastical stories, which were written by famous people like Mark Twain and Edgar Allan Poe under pseudonyms, about monsters and the quest for monsters and the search for monsters. Some of these were exposed as hoax hoaxes, and some of them we have to wonder about. Well, the Snallygaster was one of them, and that started in the uh, early 1900s, and uh, it was created by journalists in, um, in actually in Maryland, but sightings of this creature spread all into the surrounding areas, including West Virginia. It was a reptilian sort of uh, entity. It had big wings, like dragon-like wings, uh, this um, big, long beak, uh, uh, incredibly long tail, and most interestingly, a single eye, like a cyclops in the middle of its forehead. Old one eye. Old one eye, and it was seen flying around, and there were even stories about it laying eggs and people finding the eggs like they were going to hatch out baby snallygasters. And uh, eventually the journalists admitted that the story was a hoax. But even after the hoax was admitted, people kept seeing the Snallygaster. And in fact, sightings are reported to this day. So what's going on? Is it uh, we're seeing some other sort of creature, and because we might know about the Snallygaster, we sort of fit that appearance onto what we're seeing? Um, At any rate, the Snallygaster lives on. Well, I I think you nailed it there, Rosemary. I think uh, this journalist who created this hoax happened to create a monster which resembles a creature that might very well exist to this day, even though we've been told that it died out some 60 million years ago, and that's some sort of a pterosaur or a pterodactyl. And they've been seen all over the world in places like Papua New Guinea. Why not the United States? You know, when you look at uh, visionary fiction and science fiction and fantasy fiction, um, we we often find writers who uh, they, they sort of see into the future, they see into other dimensions, uh, they anticipate things that uh, are in fact uh, real in some sense. But um, this may have happened in the Snallygaster case that the journalists had. They wanted to create uh, um, this monstrous entity to write about, and maybe they were capable of tapping into something that really existed. And because our consciousness provides links to other dimensions, this entity was then able to manifest in ours. I believe these are plausible explanations. Well, of course, we have the, the Native American legend of the, the Thunderbird, uh, which is sort of connected to this, this, uh, this as well, because y- you were explaining to me that the Thunderbird uh, or the pterodactyl may be one and the same. Absolutely. In fact, monster birds are probably one of our most common mysterious creature sightings. And uh, these are often like enormous things with huge, unimaginable wingspans of dozens of feet. Uh, and, of course, the experts say, no way could something like that get off the ground. But we have fossils that show that there were large flying reptiles and even extremely large birds in prehistoric times. The um, pterodactyls, for example, 
um, were huge. They had uh, wingspans of of up to uh, 40 feet. The the, uh, pterodactyls were part of a larger subset of flying reptiles called pterosaurs. And uh, they had leathery-like wings. They had teeth in their beaks. Their bones were hollow, and that's why they could be so big and fly. Well, supposedly these things are extinct, and when people have large bird sightings, the experts rush out and say, oh, well, uh, you just mistook a, you know, a big bird for something bigger. Uh, or they speculate that maybe some of these creatures are still living. Interdimensional entity is the only good explanation to explain some of these sightings. What are some of the other big birds, uh, the, the monster birds that you, that you talk about in uh, in Monsters of West Virginia? I mean, the not the the uh, the, rep, the flying reptiles, but you know, huge versions of of uh, of uh, birds that we're all familiar with, like owls. Uh, I think it's called the big hoot. What can you tell me about big hoot? Big hoot uh, is um, a giant owl said to be uh, up to three feet in height. Uh, and uh, that certainly would scare anyone who came across it. Uh, it was named by, uh, given its, ac- or its nickname, Big Hoot, by a, a cryptozoologist named Mark Hall. There have been a lot of sightings of giant owls around West Virginia, and uh, these are creatures that supposedly do not exist in the natural world. And yet over and over again, when people have these sightings, they always insist, I know what I saw. Many of these people who live in rural areas, they know the local wildlife, and they know when something is out of place. Uh, Big Hoot was even proposed as uh, an explanation for Mothman, that uh, people were really seeing unusually large owls. Um, There have been things that look like giant turkey vultures that people have seen. And again, these beasts are like uh, four to five feet tall. Uh, there was uh, a very odd sighting in an area near the town of Clenadin, West Virginia, where a guy was driving down the road, and it seems like people always driving down the road, and they go around a, a bend, and there in the middle of the road is something really weird. And so in the middle of the road is this huge uh, bird, which is kind of wobbling around, and uh is tall enough to peer straight into his driver's window. Uh, He said it was about four feet tall, and it had um, uh, a big black beak, and it looked like it had been feeding on roadkill. And it had a very unusual upper torso. Uh, He said he could um, even sense the muscles, like it had real shoulders. And uh, it seemed startled when he came around the bend, and it stared at him briefly and then took off. And instead of just lifting off, it had to do like a takeoff roll, like an airplane. It lumbered on down the road, kind of wobbling and unevenly, and then managed to lift off into the air. People have, have reported birds like that, and they describe them, and the ornithologists say no such thing, uh, or they come up with something rather similar. Well, this sounds similar, so you must have seen. But 
nothing that we know of exactly matches what these people see. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, her new book is Monsters of West Virginia, Mysterious Creatures in the Mountain State. Now, we've been concentrating on flying monsters and, and uh, monster birds, but there is, while time permits, and we just have a few minutes, uh, a, a, a creature that you describe here. I have never heard this before. Uh, it's actually kind of a funny name because I, I'm, uh, I'm a big Bigfoot fan, and I know you are too. So this sort of combines livestock with Bigfoot, something called Sheep Squatch. What on earth is Sheep Squatch, Rosemary? Sheep Squatch is another multiple animal that should not be. That is, it borrows a little characteristics of a lot of animals. It's it's woolly like a sheep, big like a bear. Uh, sometimes it's said to have a ram's face, uh, single point horns like a, uh, like a goat, a big snout, red eyes. Uh, sometimes it's dirty brown, and it lumbers around like a bear. And I got the nickname Sheep Squatch. Sometimes it, it has attacked people. Uh, it's part of a larger category of creatures called white things which also seem to be very aggressive. They've got very big, sharp teeth, and uh, they've been reported to attack hunters and campers. People think they're being, uh, like, literally clawed to death, like you, like you might be with a bear. But suddenly the animal vanishes, and there isn't a scratch on the person. Oh, my. And uh, this couldn't be some sort of an albino bear? No one has ever been able to find a natural species that matches these entities. Also, they often have the capability of lumbering around on their hind legs like a human. Many mysterious creatures can go about on all fours or hind legs. I recently got a report from Alaska from a man who lives outside of Anchorage who saw one of these creatures that sounds like the sheep squatch from West Virginia. So they're attacking people, but they're actually not doing any physical harm because when people recover from this attack and the creature just simply vanishes, there's no, there are no scratches or bite marks. That's characteristic of a lot of mystery creatures. They terrify more than actually harm. Um, and sometimes they, they terrify just because they're big and they come close up and they, they um, seem very threatening. But the sheep squatch and the white things can actually uh, attack people for no apparent reason and, and, and not leave a mark. So it's a mystery why they act that way. But, w- but we find many unanswered questions with mysterious creatures. Monsters of West Virginia, mysterious creatures in the Mountain State. What's, uh, what's next, Rosemary? What are you working on right now? I'm working on a book about the hot zones around the planet, Uh, these places of intense activity where um, a lot of things happen all the time. We call them portals. I'm documenting a lot of those and uh, putting forth uh, my explanations for why the Earth literally is a planet full of portals. All right. Well, listen, again, uh, a great meeting you again down in uh, Phoenix and your uh, fiancé, Joe. Uh, congratulations on Monsters of West Virginia. Looking forward to the new book, and you and I will talk next month. Thank you, Richard. All right, stay tuned. Coming up next, a key witness to the largest, best-documented UFO sighting in modern history. Hey, welcome back, friends. I'm going to take you back 16 years, almost. March 13, 1997. And you're in, uh, imagine you're in uh, Arizona, maybe Nevada, from Phoenix down to the edge of Tucson, even 
in Sonora, Mexico. You look up and you see what appears to be a huge, an immense carpenter square, UFO shaped, or shaped, uh, carpenter square shaped UFO. Uh, this thing is hovering silently just above rooftops, obliterating the night sky. Thousands of people saw this, including then-Governor Fife Symington. He later called the object otherworldly. I'm speaking, of course, about the Phoenix Lights. Just returned from Phoenix uh, last week at the uh, big UFO uh, conference down there, and obviously uh, people 16 years later are still talking about this, what's been described as the largest, best-documented UFO incident in modern history. Dr. Lynn Kitai is an internationally acclaimed physician, health educator. She pushed aside her successful medical career after coming forward as a key witness to this historic and still unexplained mass UFO sighting. Dr. Lynn, welcome once again to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Oh, just wonderful, Richard. It's, it's a pleasure to speak with you tonight and uh, meeting you last week. Uh, we, had a, we had a fun time and so appreciate letting your uh, listeners know about the, the Phoenix Lights, which... We are celebrating our 16th anniversary on Wednesday. It's it's amazing. It's been so long and still unexplained. You know, I talk uh, to uh, to uh, people about UFOs, and and a couple of names come up. I mean, uh, obviously, people still talk about Roswell in 1947. Uh, people uh, talk about if they're familiar with you know, the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident uh, at a, a U.S. Air Force Joint U.S. Air Force RAF base in England in 1980. Uh, and then, of course, the Phoenix Lights. Now, what is it about this incident? Because, you know, there, we had the Stephenville Lights back in uh, 2008, I believe, in January. Mm-hmm. We had the, the UFO incident over O'Hare uh, Airport in 2006. Those have been not forgotten, but they just have not captured the public's Im- imagination and attention like the Phoenix Lights. Why, 16 years later, are we still so mystified by this? Um, I, I think, firstly, there is so much documentation for it, uh, not only from thousands. I mean, they, we estimate over 10,000 witnesses, and so many have come forward to share their own stories. And, and certainly the more credible the witnesses are, such as the former governor, and um, we have military and pilots and even a 911 police operator that was on that night in Phoenix and uh, so forth that have uh, really lent such credibility to an incredible, uh, extraordinary sighting that uh, to this day, I mean, we, we still have not seen any kind of technology that even comes close to what we saw throughout Arizona. And anyone out there that's not familiar with the Phoenix Lights, we're talking about March 13th, 1997. And, and I have to say, too, Richard, that there's been so much mis- and disinformation out there. One of the main reasons I came forward, among others, is that uh, it was very frustrating. Um, for seven years, I pushed my entire professional life aside, and my husband, who's also a physician, and I had a very close sighting two years prior to the mass sighting, uh, and I happened to capture pictures of that and, and had no idea or interest in this topic at all. And once thousands of people saw what I had seen, it really sent me on a journey to try to find a logical source and meaning, and I, I have yet to find one. It, it actually opened up a whole new world that ultimately I felt was, was too important not to share with the public, and the public can make up their own minds. But the data is there, and 
if people would like to go to the Phoenix Lights Network website, it's packed with information from photographs, a unique collection of these uh, Phoenix Lights uh, that have been authenticated by university and, and military optical physicists and, and experts, as well as uh, the gap page, which shows eight or nine different craft that we're seeing. I mean, there's so much more to this story than the general public is aware, unless you've, you've read my book, actually, which was a 750-page journal um, of, of all the details, plus more, plus the sightings that, that you mentioned, similar sightings worldwide. Uh, but on the night of March 13th, actually they started, uh, these phenomena started about 3 p.m. We have reports, we have even have reports two, two months before the mass sighting. I happened to capture, capture the same exact phenomena, mile-wide phenomena, in the same exact location that I would also catch video, one of the handful of videos from that night on March 13th, uh, which were confirmed the next morning, actually two months before I caught this thing head-on, turning into a, a V-shape and uh, on, on sharing this with air traffic controllers the next morning, they shared with me that uh, they saw the same exact thing in the same exact time uh, actually hovering a 1,000 feet over Class B restricted airspace. It's a 30-mile radius around the airport where anyone that comes into that area must call into the tower, and no one did. So Dr. Lynn, sorry, i got to jump in here. We're going to take sure. a quick time out. We'll come back. Dr. Lynn Kitai, Phoenix Light, 16 years later, here on The Conspiracy Show. Dr. Lynn Kitai is uh, with us, uh, the author of The Phoenix Lights, A Skeptic's Discovery That We Are Not Alone, and uh, that gave way to, uh, or gave rise to, uh, her documentary, The Phoenix Lights, We Are Not Alone, which features um, uh, Dr. Edgar Mitchell, Former astronaut, of course, the sixth man to walk on the moon, former Governor Fife Symington, and the former vice mayor, investigators, military pilots, and witnesses. And that's one of the key things, uh, Dr. Lynn, as you said before the break, is that uh, I mean, we, we all focus on the events of March 13th, uh, but you and others saw this uh, months before, days before, um, the exact same phenomenon in the same, in the same place. Yeah, I mean, that, that was what was so amazing, Richard, that I happened to, to capture six pictures in a row. They were, the, some of them are posted, a sampling is posted at the, on the, fo, uh, the photo page of the Phoenix Lights Network website um, for all to see. I mean, it's, it's there, and it's, they've been authenticated and cannot be denied or explained. And what was interesting is that the air traffic controllers were alarmed when they um, saw this, these lights pop up and did not show up on radar, and this was in Class B restricted airspace, so they took their binoculars to look, and they described in their own words six points of light that were totally equidistant from each other, massive span over a mile wide, that seemed to be attached to something, but they couldn't quite see what it was attached to. And you would hear that over and over again during the mass sighting two months later. But they described it, and one of them was a meteorologist, this, this whole massive array turning, against the wind and then elevating as a unit and moving behind South Mountain, which is just south of the uh, Sky Harbor International Airport. And when I asked, so what was it, there was silence. And then one of them said, beats me. And I said, you're air traffic controllers. You're supposed to know it's in our airspace. They had no clue. We kept in contact. I continued photographing them up until and including on March 13th when I caught uh, one of the signatures, only a handful of videos from that night, uh, the three points of light 
over the city. Actually, it was in the same exact location confirmed by the air traffic controllers the next morning as well. And what was amazing is that we just found out a couple years ago that actually on the Navajo uh, nation, Navajo Range, uh, there was a, a, another big sighting the day before. Yes. So people were seeing these things, uh, these lights and, and different formations, and you... I wasn't even documenting them, but it's interesting to find out that on the Navajo Nation, they actually had an event where the residents came out with their lawn chairs and were watching these. It was a block things. party. You introduced yeah. you introduced me to one of these uh, Navajo Rangers, John mm-hmm. Milford, uh, sorry, John Dover, mm-hmm. and John, uh, I guess, was at home at the time, and uh, yeah, he said people were bringing their lawn chairs Exactly. Out under the front lawns, looking up at the sky, and for some of them, this was just here we go again because they called them the submarine races. They see these lights come up over the horizon mm-hmm. time and time again and do their thing, and uh, of course they don't talk much about it publicly. But that was fascinating. Well, now, they're starting to now, which is really wonderful that we have law enforcement, and certainly I've always pushed for science to come on board here. But when you have law law enforcement officers that that are actually taking this seriously and using their tools and and joining forces with MUFON Mutual UFO Network to get to the bottom of these things, um, then we then we really you know made it I think a big step forward. But the the main issue here with the Phoenix Lights, which which has really come full circle, because I have to share too, Richard, when I came forward in 2004, the official and accepted explanation, of course, not for the witnesses or investigators, but for everyone else, um, was that the the Phoenix Lights were merely military illumination flares. That was the only explanation that they ever came up with. And, And as you see how the story progresses, it's very interesting that after the mass sighting, and, and we're talking two months after the, the sighting in January, is when the mass sighting took place on March 13th. And we have um, reports uh, as early as 3 p.m. in the afternoon in the Phoenix area at 5.30, you mentioned. We have uh, in New Mexico Native Americans and 7.15 in California. 11.30, there was uh, two commercial airlines passing through uh, Nevada that saw the same thing. And then uh, we have a call, a recorded um, call from an alleged crewman from Luke Air Force Base to the National UFO Reporting Center in Seattle, Washington, and we have part of that uh, report, actually, the recorded uh, message in the documentary, and I, and I talk about it in the book as well, uh, sharing that one of these objects, and it wasn't just lights. Some people saw craft, and if you go to the GAP page, G-A-P, uh, geospatial animation project on the Phoenix Lights Network website, you'll see nine different crafts that people described, hundreds of people, and it was, they were only, after a 12-year compilation of hundreds of reports, only those craft that were described by multiple people that saw the same thing. Dr. Lynn, you, uh, you launched your own investigation. I mean, you called Luke Air Force Base, and at first they said, no, we have no record of any flights. It was only later that they came back and said, oh, we completely forgot. Was it the Maryland right. the Maryland uh, National Guard were dropping uh, flares from their AC-10 warthogs? I mean, how do you forget something like that or well, not know well, about it? Well, not only that, Richard, I, you know, I have to share that when you see how the puzzle pieces fit together and, and start connecting the dots, it's, it, it speaks for itself. I always say that that speaks for itself. I just hope people look look at it, and that's why I came forward after seven years of anonymity. But the, the interesting part, as you mentioned, is that for months there was nothing, no explanation, no investigation, no explanation, oh, something happened. Uh, they, even the police department denied that they got calls. And meanwhile, this 911 police operator that's in our documentary now came forward a few years ago to say, you know, I'm retired now and I'm going to tell the story. And, and they got hundreds and hundreds of calls. But besides that, it wasn't until June 18th, 
June 18th, months later, the front page article uh, in USA Today opened the mass sighting up to international scrutiny overnight. And there was no social media at the time, and the internet was just getting started. But overnight, it was it went viral, and every news station, every morning show, Peter Jennings, Dan Rather were were talking about the the, the mass sighting here. And by late morning, the very next day. Uh, we get this message, uh, you know, in the media that the former, the governor at the time, Governor Symington, was calling a press conference to divulge the culprit of the Phoenix Lights. Well, he comes marching out one of his aides with a giant alien head and made a joke out of it, which I have to say offended many, many people, um, especially parents that were with children that saw the thing go right over their heads. I mean, that was what was so eerie. I mean, this was very low gliding objects that were rooftop level. Some people said they could. Have, it was so low they could throw a, a rock at it, and other people saw it take off at a tremendous speed, totally silent, incredible technology. Others saw these orbs detach from the main object, go out into the environment, and then redock with it. I mean, when you, when you hear the stories, and that's what happened when, when the media worldwide became aware that, and started talking to the witnesses, their descriptions were so detailed and so heartfelt that they, too, were asking, why isn't there an investigation? Why isn't there an explanation? And then, lo and behold, and, and in the meantime, I was calling every military base, and, and they were more curious than anybody of what it was. I mean, it was I, I described some of my conversations in, in my book. I mean, they had no clue either, and they had already said that all the planes were bedded down at, at like, 530, and everything was... Uh, you know, there was nothing in the sky after 7 o'clock and so forth. And suddenly I get a call a month after the USA Today article on July 24th from one of the heads of PR at the Air National Guard. And she says, oh, Dr. Lynn, do you believe, you know, we, we know uh, what those lights were. We think we know what those lights were back in March. I said, you do. And I was looking for any logical explanation. I was very excited that, that she knew. And she said, do you believe nobody ever looked at the log for visiting Air National Guard, and the Maryland Air National Guard was in town sending off flares in Operation Snowbird, which I later found out means diversionary tactical maneuvers in military terms. Mm. And I have to say, whether they did it or not, it's been a diversion ever since. Well, Dr. Lynn, you they said... succeeded in that, that behalf. I but you said say. something very interesting earlier. You, when you called Sky Harbor and the air traffic controllers said something that was very key, they saw that formation turn against the wind. Exactly. Those couldn't have been flares no, if they were turning... No, they, they ruled that out. They ruled out flares. They ruled out, um, you know, people with uh, parachutes and lights. They ruled out every, every kind of earthly, conventional... Uh, possibility uh, they ruled out at that they were very forthcoming to begin with and then of course as as the months went on they were you know it was just they were shut down well you um, um, uh, the other interesting thing here um, was that people were affected in a, on, a, on, a, on a spiritual psychological way Oh yeah, yeah. That's that's really important. But I just wanted to finish the conversation okay. with the with the uh, um, the uh, PR person from uh, the Air National Guard because I said to her, you know, and this, this is this is poignant too, Richard, because I said, well, you know, when was the Maryland Air National Guard in town? She said March first to the fifteenth. I said, were they in town in January? 
She says, oh, no. I said, are you sure? She says, absolutely. And I had never told them what I saw or when, but I said to her, well, I have 35-millimeter photographs of the same exact phenomena in the same exact location confirmed the next morning by air traffic controllers, both in January and the morning after the mass sighting is hovering in Class B restricted airspace, 1,000 feet altitude. And she says, you never told me that. Hmm. And then I said, and you're trying to say that flares... And by then I had educated myself to anything logical, including military illumination flares, cannot keep a formation for more than a couple seconds. They drift and drop with the wind haphazardly and have huge smoke trails that are illuminated by the flare itself and illuminate the area around it. That's what they're used for. And not one witness described that. Not one witness to the true unknowns described that. I said, and you're, you're saying that, that flares that cannot keep a, a, an array traverse the entire state in a mile wide V formation for hours, and mm. he says, uh, I have a call coming in, I'll get back to you. Well, I'm still <laughs> waiting. So, so that was very poignant to me, but I was still open, as were other people. Hey, if it's flares, look, I knew I had photographs not only two months before, but in the photographs I took of close orbs, very close orbs, two years before, the same exact phenomena is in the same exact location there as well. And you can just take a look at the data. It speaks for itself. It's on the photo page on the Phoenix Lights Network. So whoever did it, did it multiple times, do it again. They tried well, we to, had to yeah. wait until right before the third anniversary. There was a big announcement that three Air National Guards were coming into town to send off flares so everybody could see the Phoenix Lights, and everybody was ready for them, including the media and the witnesses. And I have to say that, you know, it put the nail in the coffin for them because it, it absolutely did not resemble the Phoenix Lights at all. In fact, there's a, uh, a news piece on the news page from uh, the CNN affiliate here uh, that Arizona family, if you, if you look that up, uh, on the news page on the Phoenix Lights Network website that has the, 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 the flare drop. And they tried to make a triangle. It was upside down. It fell apart immediately. You can see the smoke trails. I mean, it just was, was almost a joke. So that, that really um, confirmed for the witnesses that what we saw was definitely not flares. And it has never been reenacted, nor have the craft. Now, you know, the multiple craft that people saw, whether it was one craft that could morph into looking differently or the perspective from where the person was standing or a parade of different craft because there were multiple things going on at the same time and the, the investigators feel that it was a parade. Um, we may never know. Well, the, the thing is uh, uh, flares are not... I mean, you live... Uh, Luke Air Force Base is, is, is close by. People, I'm guessing, would have seen flares before. We see them periodically all yeah. the time and, we, you know, you can tell in a heartbeat. And, that they're flares. And, and we're just about out of time here, but people have been impacted at a deep psychological, spiritual level, including yourself. Tell me a little bit about Absolutely. that. Absolutely. I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up because that was one of the one of the things that really impacted me personally because I knew the transformation I went through, and I try to express that in the book, and it's helped others. And if anybody's listening out there, I hope they do pick up the book because I didn't even realize till. Um, you know, I, I wrote, you know, I squeezed down the best of what I found from 750 pages plus the story of how it unfolded that it helps others to deal with their own experiences. And most things can be explained, but the, there is a percentage of things, a small percentage that cannot. And just because we don't have that technology yet doesn't mean they're not real. We might just be looking on the AM dial for an FM frequency. But the other side of this is how it affected people, not only in real time, because the, the movie Independence Day had, had, was real popular at the time, and kids that saw this were scared. I mean, that's what we're 
trained to be, to be afraid by, by media and, and We've got about 30 seconds, Doctor. Okay. Sorry. And, and in real time, when the thing passed over, the, a calmness and a connectiveness came over everyone. And the after effect of these is very, very positive. And I hope people take a look at that. I call them an up in the connection between all unexplained phenomena I also discovered. So it, it's really profound, and, and it's still affecting people today. And the former governor came forward after the 10th anniversary, as you mentioned, to say that he actually saw it. So the more credible people that come forward and, and realize it. that it affects us at a deep level, the more we'll, Dr. we'll expand our awareness. Got to go, but thank you. Thank you so much. Dr. Bye-bye now. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Tim Spring. Back next Keep week. looking up. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.